The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. Today we welcome John Flack. John received his PhD in human experimental psychology from The Ohio State University in 1984. After more than 30 years of teaching and supervising graduate research in universities, he joined Mile2, a custom software development company, where he works as a senior cognitive systems engineer. John has written extensively about cognitive systems engineering and ecological interface design approaches. His work in human performance and design includes three co-authored books, three co-edited books, and more than 180 archival publications. After many years of talking and writing about cognitive systems systems engineering and ecological interface design, he is enjoying the opportunity to test what he has learned against the challenges of designing practical solutions to contemporary problems in socio-technical systems. Welcome, John, and thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. I always like to hear about how people got their start. So my, um, my first question for you is about your beginning, and I believe you started your career as a mental health counselor, and I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about your experiences in that role. Yeah, so um, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I was in college, um, but eventually I uh, found myself in a, a psychology program, and I thought I wanted to be a social worker. And uh, in, in fact, when I graduated, I got a recommendation and uh, had, did an interview with a uh, community south of Chicago as a community organizer. And uh, I didn't get that job. Um, but sometimes I speculate if I'd gotten that job, I might have been president. <laughs> Eventually. But uh, so I came home to Dayton with a psych degree and uh there weren't any jobs i ended up working as an orderly in an in a nursing home for a while but i eventually got a job at good samaritan hospital in dayton in their pastoral care department which was kind of crisis counseling and uh one of the benefits at at uh good sam hospital as working was after i was there a year i could take classes they would pay for classes in my area and i wasn't i didn't even know much about graduate school but i thought i kind of liked the social environment of colleges and i thought it'd be fun to take a course and so i went and registered for a course at ud and started taking it and in the registration process um i didn't talk to anybody at ud and i filled out a full full application and went down took it to their registration office and uh I had all these materials and a woman said, well, you're just part-time, right? And she said, you don't need all that stuff. And she gave me an index card to fill out and I filled it out. And, and I gave her the, all the materials I brought and I, with the idea that she'd throw it away. Well, I, I was taking the course and midway through the term, the teacher said, John, congratulations, we're offering you an assistantship. <laughs> and I'm like, how could that be? I haven't applied. And she said, well, we have an application. So, so apparently this woman filed my application with the other applications. And I didn't even know that the idea that you could get paid to go to graduate school was just, I just didn't know that. And so I started in social psychology there. But eventually what happened is uh, my office mate was Chris Hale. And Herb Simon was coming to Dayton to give a talk. Now, I didn't know who Herb Simon was, but Chris is like, Oh, you've got to go hear Herb Simon, and so I did it. And uh, and actually, Herb Simon came to the psych department, and met with the graduate students there. And after I heard him talk, I went home and told my wife, "Now I know what education's about." And this is the first time I really felt I heard somebody who was really just blew me away. And so at that point, I applied for graduate school, and in uh, in experimental psychology, thinking uh, I wanted to kind of pursue some of the questions that Herb Simon raised, and that's how I ended up at Ohio State. 
and and then working with Rich Jagosinski. And at the time at Ohio State, they were building the aviation psychology lab. And so I was on in on the ground floor of that. And and again, I didn't know what human factors was or man machine systems. I was going to study psychology, but ended up having an advisor who was an engineer, and we were building models of pilots in the loop. So that's how I got into human factors and man machine systems. Interesting. So when you met Herb Simon at that point in his career, had he um, received the Nobel Prize? I, I think he had. I mean, again, my memory is vague about because I didn't even know who he was. But I think that was one of the things that her, that Chris was saying. He had just won the Nobel Prize. So it was, it, it was either just up for consideration or when he just won. It would have been about 77 Wow. Yeah. I can imagine that'd be pretty exciting as a young grad student to meet a Nobel laureate. <laughs> yeah. And oh, I can remember distinctly, he was in the student lounge and he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a calculator and he says, he says, this is amazing. Now I can carry a device in my pocket that can do trig functions. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I mean, that was 1977. So, you know, at that time there were no personal computers, you know, there was a campus computer. So, and even when I was at Ohio State, I mean, we did all our, all our analysis uh, with punch cards. Yeah. On a local computer. I was talking to my daughter-in-law about a month ago and I mentioned punch cards and she didn't even know what a punch card was. Right. Yeah. So, so it sounds like early on um, you were, uh, really thinking about um, uh, kind of more careers that had more kind of interpersonal helping role. Um, and then you kind of just happened into human factors and the intersection between technology and humans. Um, is that right? Or, or was there like a shift for you, a moment when you thought this is really the right direction to go in? Yes. Yeah, so I, you know, yeah. So I started human factors. I mean, sorry, psychology. You know, thinking that I was going to solve people's problems. You know, as a social worker, and my experience with Good Sam, uh, I found somewhat frustrating because uh, it's not very easy to change people's behavior. <laughs> and so, so I, I, I kind of felt like that was much more, much too complicated. Um, and, you know, when you looked at clinical psychology, there were all, all these different theories and they were all plausible, but I didn't see much help, hope in differentiating among them. So I, I, I shifted to social psychology thinking, you know, looking at organizations, that's a little bit more. But even while I was at UD, I ended up doing my thesis on attention and I gradually, I gradually simplified and simplified. And I think I, you know, went down to simple human performance as a as a much more tractable problem and in fact you know what herb simon's work but but also in the early days i mean when i looked at things like fitz law and and the hick hyman law and stuff the idea that you could put functions down you know straight line functions and fit data uh gave me at least the illusion at that time that these were answerable problems these were manageable problems mm. um and then i ended up you know, ended up in cognitive systems engineering and working on even more complex problems. Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Uh, a lot of the problems you've worked on are really, really, really hard problems. So there's no clear solution. Interesting. And so do you, uh, do you remember how you connected with the naturalistic decision-making community or, or when or how that happened? Yeah, so um, I first learned about Gary's work uh, while I was an assistant professor at, at Illinois and uh, Gary came over and visited Illinois. And, and I don't remember exactly what the first contact, I, I'm not even sure if I found out about Gary and I was involved in bringing him in or if it was Neville Murray or Penny Sanderson who invited him over to Illinois. Uh, but he came and visited Illinois and I met him. And, and it was about the time when I knew that I wasn't going to be staying in Illinois and I was looking for a job and, and was actually interviewing in Dayton. And so I, uh, when I came over to interview, I, I visited uh, Gary's company at that time and began, you know, and was, of course, when I came to Dayton and I was, that was one of the attractions to Dayton, who was interacting with him. 
Yeah. And so um, was was NDM a thing yet? Was that what has been in the 80s still? At, at that time, it was, you know, it was more recognition primed RPD. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I think the foundation was there, but I think it was much more framed in terms of the, the RPD model at that time. So, John, speaking of collaborating uh, and, and sort of getting to know folks, uh, you seem to have had a pretty strong collaboration with researchers in the Netherlands at, at Delft University in, of Technology. How did that connection come about? So there's a there's an interesting story behind that, too. Uh, so we had uh, we were we were very active. I was active within the ecological psychology and part of my goal, you know, I was I felt that some of the ideas of ecological psychology had really interesting implications for human factors. And so I had organized a a session at the event perception conference uh, that was being held in Miami for human factors applications of ecological psychology. And the organizer who was Len Mark at that time gave me a call and he said, we've got this group from Delft from industrial design engineering and they want to come and give a paper at the conference, but we're not sure where they fit in. And we were wondering if you would uh, invite them to be in your session. And uh, this was uh, a woman, Hedda Schmitz, was the head of that group at that time. And Herda was a psychologist by training, and but she was a head of industrial design uh, group at Delft. And she and the conference was at Miami at Oxford, uh, Ohio, and I was at Illinois at the time. And I contacted Hedda and invited her to be in our session. And I invited her to come to Illinois to visit, since there's no good way to get to Oxford, Ohio. Uh, I suggested they come to Champaign and we would drive down to Oxford together and they could see our labs and visit us. And from the moment they got off the plane in Champaign, uh, we were completing each other's sentences like everything they would they start saying we're doing this and i say oh yes but i'm doing something like that and it just clicked and uh her student pj stoppers uh gave the talk in miami and he and i become very very close friends he's now the head of industrial design group the group that herda was ahead of and i was on pj's dissertation committee so my first trip to delft was to be on uh, PJ Stopper's dissertation committee, and then later I was invited for uh, Max Mulder in aerospace engineering his dissertation because he was doing optic flow, and I think now I've been on like thirteen or fourteen dissertation committees in Delft. Wow! And it's it's kind of Delft's a small town, and actually I I probably feel more at home in Delft than almost anywhere else in the world. Right. So, so we've we've had a couple of these uh, podcasts where folks have talked about sort of parallel or, or related fields and sort of uh, moving between them. Do, do you have that sense for yourself between sort of human factors and NDM folks and the ecological psychology folks as well? Yeah. Well, so um, I think there's a the I think the big overlap, but I think there's a clear overlap between ecological psychology and NDM and cognitive system engineering. And it, and it reflects a shift that, that happened, uh, I think in psychology to, and we, we went away. So when I started in psychology, that focus was on human limitations. And so, you know, the Hickheimen law and Fitz law and things, these, these were ways of documenting the bounds of performance and so we, we know memory is limited and stuff, but, but what happened with, I think, Gary's work and Gibson's work and, uh, you know, and I think Rasmussen's work is they all began looking not at the limitations of people, but how was it that experts actually got around those limitations? So people began shifting from the performance limitations to the, to expertise and, you know, the one way I like to say it is, is, you know, trying to figure out how experts in domains do things that are impossible for normal humans. And so, you know, figuring out those tricks of the trade and the heuristics, you know, trying to understand fire ground commander or the, the nuclear power operator and how they do this very complex work 
and curiosity about the abilities of humans. And, and this was the same thing for Gibson. You know, what attracted Gibson was not all the, all the uh, illusions of perception, but the fact that people were so good at controlling their mo- locomotion and they didn't run into things. And, and so he, it was a shift from limitations to skill and expertise. And so have you seen your role in both communities as, as being sort of an interloper or a, a bridge maker um, to sort of show each other the, the commonalities and, and help the communities learn from one another? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm a bridge maker, or maybe <laughs> more a troublemaker. Probably. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, again, I, you know, I think as a scientist, I'm, you know, kind of a pro- professional skeptic. So when I'm in the MDM, I'm I'm trying to bring in ideas of ecological psychology. Um, right. I'm kind of disrupting some of the MDM thinking with ideas from uh, ecological psychology. And in the same way, I, I tend to critique ecological psychologists from the perspective of of MDM. And and the I think the unifying theme for me in all this goes back to my first days at Ohio State and working with Rich Jagosinski. So I think the common thing is is uh, the idea of the coupling of perception and action in a closed loop, and that's the theme that I try to that cuts across all these communities is looking at the dynamics of perception and action. And you know I think although a lot of psychology in psychology the cybernetic model has been around in psychology for a long time, and a lot of our diagrams are circular. So even the recognition prime decision-making is circular, so loops. But my sense is is that most social scientists, or a lot of social scientists, don't have very good intuitions about the dynamics of closed-loop systems. And they try to impose causal descriptions, uh, you know, that imply a kind of linearity in time that simply does not apply to closed-loop systems. And so, you know, and, and, and I find in, in Gary's stories from the field, when you look at people in the field, but in also Gibson's work and stuff, that they're, they're things that they're talking about things that emerge out of that coupling. Yeah, this is so interesting. I have been thinking about this coupling um, quite a bit myself recently in, in terms of training. And, and, and um, in some situations, the the assessment portion of training occurs at a different time from the acting. Um, and I think there's a lot of decrement to that. So you're disrupting um, the ability to learn some of the skills you need to um, kind of manage attention between assessing and acting and reacting and reassessing. Um, so I, I think this, this coupling comes up over and over again. Yeah. And one of the, I think the difficult aspects for many people, uh, not just psychologists, for the dynamics of closed-loop systems is the concept of time and timing. And again, we tend to think of kind of a domino kind of explanation, you know, kind of a sequence of activities. And the dynamics of a control system are described over time. So it's not a sequence. The, the constraints on control systems operate over time. And, and we tend to build explanations in time as in terms of sequences. But what we're really looking at is patterns over time. And, and, and the idea of events happening over time. And, you know, Gibson has, has said, you know, there's no such thing as, as time, but there's only events. There's order of events and things like that. And again, a lot of people misunderstand that. But to me, it's it's a function of not thinking about ticks of a clock, but thinking about melodies and patterns over time. And, and that's critical to understanding the dynamics of closed loop systems. So one of the things I, um, I really admire about you is your ability to kind of take these concepts and describe them in interesting ways, like just your use of the term melody there. Um, and I was reflecting on this book you wrote recently, um, a meaning processing approach to cognition that integrates um, comic book style elements 
um, in the discussion of these, um, you know, really kind of heady topics. And I wondered um, if you would just talk a little bit about what it was like to write um, using this non-traditional style about these kind of big, big ideas. Yeah, well, that, that also links to Delft and the industrial design engineers. So one of the things that PJ Stoppers did in his dissertation is he had these little cartoons in his in his uh, diagrams, and they were just simple stick figures and stuff. But it, but I, I, I kind of all, always admired that kind of artistic side and things. And and actually, when I started to write the book, I, I asked, I was invited PJ Stoppers to work with me on it and to do cartoons for the book because and the other thing the other motivation is i wanted to write uh to designers as well as uh psychologists and pj never had enough time to devote to it and uh fred borhorst uh he was also a, a phd student of heritage schmitz that i met and was on, was involved in his dissertation committee as well and um he contacted me out of the blue while I was doing this. And, and one of the things he shared with me is some uh, postcards that he was doing for his local town in, in Switzerland. And they were kind of cartoonish drawings of, the, of different features of the town. And I invited him to join me in, in this book. So from the start, I knew I wanted to, to use these cartoons. The, the control ideas are very difficult to, to communicate. And so cartoons was kind of my way of kind of, somewhat sort of bringing in story in the same way that that Gary is so good at communicating concepts through stories. Uh, I wanted to kind of use the cartoons to kind of engage the reader at a different level than, than you can do with just words and more classical diagrams. And so, yeah, while we're writing it, it was, it was a great experience. So oftentimes I would sketch out ideas for cartoons and then send them off to Fred, who was in Switzerland, and uh, he would never do what I asked him to do. <laughs> he would always come out with back with something that was different but better than what I had had conceived of. And so, you know, it took us about ten years to write that book. And and so during those ten years, I mean, my best weeks were the the days when I I'd get a load of cartoons from from Fred, and there were there were always interesting and surprising and, and, and different than what I, what I had anticipated. <laughs> so I can imagine, um, uh, even creating the drafts of the cartoons, um, required you to think about things differently and crystallize ideas in the way, in ways that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, w- was that a whole learning experience or, or are you, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, when I write a book, it's, and again, a lot of authors said that, but it's a discovery process. And so, you know, that, so I'd have, you know, so, you know, so I generally write a chapter and I'd have ideas for cartoons and Fred would come back with, with slightly different variations on those cartoons and stuff. And then, and then as a result, I would go back and revise the chapter a bit. And so, you know, it, it was a very interactive kind of cyclical kind of dynamic in which the book kind of emerged uh, from that interaction. And, you know, that interaction of creating cartoons and stuff and writing and, and back and forth, I think, uh, had a lot to do to shape without how the book turned out. Yeah, it's very effective. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a great book. I, I have really enjoyed that. Um, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit. So you, um, in recent years, moved from an academic setting where you were a you know super well respected um, professor, mentored tons of people, got them their started in their careers, and and you shifted to working for Mile Two, this company that um, does software development uh, to create solutions to very challenging problems. I wondered, as you've made this transition, um, what's been surprising to you as you as you shifted to this much more applied setting? Yeah, there's actually two things, um, and so so one, and I, I've told a lot of people this is, you know, as a, as someone in the human factors, you know, it's it's very you you often hear people in human factors talk about other engineers, and, and you know that the idea that engineers. Uh, 
think that they can do human factors because they're humans. And so we always kind of laugh at them for not understanding all the technical and all the background and things. But I think over those 30 years, I was kind of guilty of, of, of a, another kind of view is, is, is that I thought because I was clever, I could do design. And the, one of the things that I've discovered is that design itself is a really complex set of skills and it's a, really a discipline. And so um, one of the things that one of the things I'm happy that I've I've taken some time away from academics to to join this company is an opportunity to really learn and work with really well-trained designers. And and, uh, you know, that there, there really is a discipline and, and there's aspects of design that I I uh, would have never discovered within the university. And then the second thing is probably a deeper thing and, and a bigger challenge for me was uh, is to be part of a team. And, you know, I, I guess I, I always thought I was a team player, but I, I never realized how individual and, and not only uh, individual focus university was, but, but the university is really anti-team. Like every collaboration, it's it's always about well, what are you going to get out of it? What am I am I going to get a publication out of it? And evaluation, you're always competing against your uh, the other faculty, you know, for resources. And and it's and the the other aspect of it, it's all about in academics. There's one criterion, and that's publication. And it doesn't matter. It's like building a football team where the only criterion for being on the team is how far you can throw the ball. So having a team of 11 quarterbacks. And, you know, I, I struggle with that a little bit within university because there were times, for example, when I was chair, when, when I had people who I think were doing really important contributions, but they weren't publishing at a rate for, for uh, promotion. And the question was, is how to, how to get those people and keep those people in the university because you know, I knew that their skills were important. And, you know, there are several times where I was able to protect people or get people in, but I always felt like I was cheating when I was doing that in the university uh, because I really brought into that. But one of the things I've learned, you know, is in a company is you can't build soft. Nobody has all the skills required to build a piece of software. And so, so one of the things I've had to learn is, you know, sort of how to play well with others and how to be in a team and, and, and not try to be the leader or not always trying to, you know, lay your veto on the table against everybody else's, you know, it's, it's all about respecting other people's ability. And so I, you know, I've been lucky, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Grayley and, and Alex Morrison have kind of helped me learn how to play well with others. Well, that sounds like a great work environment, actually. It's good, but you know, I, I, I go and retrospect, but I, I, I really think there's aspects of academic life that are really toxic. And I, when you're living in it, you don't even see it. You don't realize it. I mean, you know, it's a very tough and competitive environment. Um, but, but it's really, uh, I think there's aspects of it that are really counterproductive in, in, in toxic ways. Interesting. Um, it's, it's interesting to hear that perspective because I know so many people who studied with you, um, who had such a great experience and have so much admiration, um, not just for you as a scholar, but as a human. And, uh, so, so whatever, um, challenges or, or, or things that made you feel isolated, I think, I think they didn't take very well, <laughs> that you still did connect and, and really help people get on their way in their careers. Yeah, well, you know, we were a team within the lab and the students, working with the students was fine. But but even each, you know, it was one lab against another. And it, it's very difficult to collaborate uh, across laboratories within the university. Even, even though I was, you know, part of a lot of multidisciplinary, you know, grant proposals and things like that. But uh, at the end of the day, um, there was still a lot of comparing each other and and, you know, I, I thought an unhealthy uh, competition. So, John, earlier you mentioned sort of this shift from uh, 
from limitation, human limitations to you know, sort of appreciation for expertise. So if we think of that as sort of a, a big change or a shift that seems to have had a, an impact on the way you look at things, I'm wondering if there are other changes, you know, in society or technology or uh, or just even, perhaps even in your life that have just had a the kind of impact on your perspective as, as those sorts of trends. Well, you know, to me, the big... The big thing is is networking, is is you know mobile communications and things like that, and so the way the the big shift I think for me most recently is to focus move away from individual cognition as an individual something that happens in an individual's head to uh, cognition as something that's distributed over an organization over a network, and um, yeah and more and more i'm beginning to think that even yeah that there almost there is no almost no such thing as individual cognition so all i think all cognition happens in a social context and 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 one of the things we're working on right now um doing some work with brian simpson looking at emergency response organizations and things and and building a, a multi-layer uh, control model of of how a different layers of organizations shape and interact uh, to, to really shape how people think in the system. So, you know, so if you look at the operators, you have to look in the context of the, the way they're being managed and, and you have to look at the management in the context of an organizational culture. And it's, it's kind of a unique kind of coupling. Uh, there, there are a lot of hierarchical control models, but it's, uh, we're building a model that, that examines kind of the soft coupling across layers and how, how different layers kind of set the possibilities. They don't determine what happens at the inner layers, but they kind of bound the possibilities within each layer below it. So there, there may not be individual cognition as a, as a bold thing to say on the NDM podcast when a lot of our methods are focused on individual experts and getting inside that individual's head. Yeah, well, that's probably where I'm most out of step with NDM in general. Um, so I don't like the idea, any implication that expertise in, is in the head. So, so, you know, when I look at like Gary's stories about, you know, fire ground commanders and stuff, what I'm, I look at is I'm not learning about what's in the commander's head. I'm learning about the problem of firefighting. And I'm beginning to see the problem and the complexities through that eyes of the expert and through that experience of, you know, 10 or 20 years of experience, I'm beginning to see the, the problem, the problem ecology in, in deeper ways. So, you know, I, I, and that's where, that's where the ecological the Gibson is that, you know, that, you know, I think the whole idea of recognition prime decision-making is, is, is most of the work is done by the perceptual part. And the information is not in the head. The information is in, you know, where the flames are coming from or where the heat's coming from or where the sounds are coming from. And so, you know, so what I think, I, you know, I really uh, value like critical incidents techniques and, and you know, and, and the, the tools that the NDM community has generated for doing knowledge elicitation. But when I'm doing the knowledge elicitation I'm not looking for what's in these heads of the experts. I'm trying to understand the domain they're working in. That's that's interesting. I'm I'm, I'm thinking about that a little bit. Um, so so are are you not interested in the strategies an individual may have developed to manage that complexity? Yeah. So but so one of the principles of control theory is a controller is always a, a reflection of the problem. So, so yes, I'm very much interested in the strategies and heuristics that experts use. And, and, but way I use those is, is they're taking advantage of information and constraints in their problems in interesting ways. So that, that is they're seeing patterns or they're seeing relationships in the problem that most other people don't understand or don't see. So, you know, when an expert coach is looking at the game, he's seeing patterns that most of us aren't aware of. And I'm curious about what patterns, you know, that that's, I guess, you know, my thing that, that unifies, I think, 
draws me to, to the NDM community is really an interest in curiosity about expertise. And, you know, how is it that the firefighters know where to direct their hose? Or, you know, how does it, you know, how, what, how does the, uh, you know, how does, how does the athlete, you know, know which hole to go to or, or anticipate where the pass is or know where his other players are? Or the, how's the coach, what are the patterns that tell him, uh, you know, which play is the right play to call in this situation? And, and so, but, but again, what I, I see is the experts are a lens on the problem, not, the, not a lens on the brain. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're trying to make trouble right here on the NDM podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, again, that goes back to your bridge question, you know, so again, yeah. And, and you know, that's, you know, to me, the interesting place is at the edges, and, and so, you know, where I'm the strongest adv- advocate for NDM is when I'm not in the NDM. So, you know, I, I, you know, when Gary started out, so, and I'm in Illinois and stuff, you know, when he comes to visit Illinois and gives a talk and then colleagues in Illinois said, yeah, it's really interesting stuff, but he's never done an experiment. And then I have to defend why the information, the data that he's collecting is more important perhaps than the information they're getting out of simple experiments in the laboratory. Um, but, but when I'm interacting with Gary, I'm saying, well, you know, but you, are, you ought to really think more about the ecology and the problem. And it's not so much what's in people's heads. It's, you know, think about what Gibson's saying and, and, and focus more on the perceptual aspects rather than the computational aspects of what you're seeing. So, so I'm curious uh, about any stories you might have where you made traction with with either group. So you so you felt like um, you know promoting the ideas of, of either side finally sort of got through to someone, or maybe not maybe not promoting, but uh, sort of arguing. Did you ever feel like you convinced anybody? Uh, no, <laughs> well, only my students. <laughs> you know, only my students, and right. and uh, but actually, I. I more often than not, it's kind of a co-discovery with my students. Hmm. So different, you know, I mean, I, I got to cognitive system engineering because of Kim Vicente. So he introduced me to Jens and, and so he, and, and really my connection to NDM was really uh, Cindy Dominguez. So Cindy, when she was doing her dissertation with me, she had taken a course with Gary. And as an exercise for that course, they had to do a knowledge elicitation with somebody. And we were also doing kind of VR stuff and, and we were interested in the visual perspective and how, you know, how, how people adapt their motor control to a camera that's displaced from the eye. And so she got interested in endoscopic surgery because it was a kind of a, a combination of those things. And her dissertation was actually going out and, and looking at decision-making in, in relationship to endoscopic surgery. And in the in the process of writing her dissertation, um, you know, we tried to frame it in terms of kind of an experimental dissertation, and it was just boring to read. Under that, we we just couldn't. It just didn't capture the excitement. And and at one point, we we kind of co-discovered. We say, you know, you have to write it from the perspective, not from the psychologist, from but from the surgeon, and run through a case and walk through a case, and then. And then bring the cognition in around the problem rather than start with a cognitive theory and, and describe what you're seeing. And, you know, as a result, I mean, her dissertation, I think, is one of the most readable dissertations that, w- that I've ever been involved in. And it's actually, you know, it was posted on the NDA, on the on the patient safety website. And in fact, I had a colleague in uh, in Cincinnati who called me and said, you know, I had your, Cindy's dissertation was on my kitchen table and my wife picked it up and she started reading it and she couldn't put it down. And she said, if I could, if this is what graduate schools are like, I want to go to graduate school. So he, he was complaining because uh, Cindy's dissertation uh, was such an attractive thing to his wife. That's great. That's great. So John, tell us one thing about yourself that the audience probably doesn't know. Yeah, that was the hardest question. <laughs> so, you know, I feel pretty much an open book. But perhaps, uh, you know, the one thing, uh, so 
Kim Bassani, you know, coined the term ecological interface design. And, you know, and, and he came to Illinois to work with me because he, he was trying to put together Gibson's ideas with, with Jens Rasmussen's ideas. And, and, uh, he and, uh, and he and Jens, you know, wrote the early papers that coined the term ecological interface design. But I think probably what most people don't know is I told him that that was a, a horrible term to use for the for EID so uh, and because because I knew at that time there were so many misconceptions about ecological psychology um, from the outside community and so I, I thought that was going to be that was an awful label um, but but now I, I that's probably the thing that I'm most associated with but it's really Kim's label and it was really against my advisement that he used that label. That's hilarious. I remember in the early days at Klein Associates arguing with Gary against using the term cognitive task analysis because I thought it implied a decomposition. Um, and uh, clearly that label has caught on as well. Yeah. And, and you're labeled with as, as, as one of the queens of that. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Label stick. That's funny. Okay, so if you uh, think back over your career, uh, which work has been the most rewarding for you? So for me, it's it's the interactions with students, and uh, again, this is probably cliche to say, but I think I get more satisfaction in seeing the students succeed uh, than than even my own success. So you know, I mean, Kim introduced me to CSE, Kim Vicente, and. You know, he actually was promoted to full professor before I was. Um, you know, Cindy Dominguez turned me on to NDM, and you know, she's you know leading a, a group at MITRE in cognitive system engineering. You know, I think one of the from a research from a kind of solving a problem point of view, uh, the work I did with uh, Matt Smith and Terry Standard on optical control of collision was really satisfying because there we took a model we 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 had an alternative model to the conventional models and we were able to do a series of experiments where we created tasks where the conventional models predicted one thing and our model predicted something else and and in every case our model uh made the right predictions and stuff and 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 it's kind of again because it it's cast in time to in in the context of control theory. A lot of people don't really understand what we are doing. But but recently, I was just reading a paper where they've identified mechanisms in the brain that correspond exactly to the components in the decomposition that that our model suggests ought to be there. So so that was particularly satisfying. But you know, lots of other students have gone on, and uh, you know, Rob, I know, did an interview with you guys. Um, Charlie Clower is doing great work, Kyle Beheimer, Marcus Fufel. We did some really interesting stuff with medical. Tim McEwen, uh, his dissertation turned into uh, a nice application that we developed in mile two. So, so yeah, it, you know, the work with the students was, I mean, that's, that's the best part of being in the university is the opportunity. And, you know, and, and despite what I said about the university, I still have a, a desire to to go back into the university at some point before I am too old to do anything else and, uh, and really bring in design back into, you know, I think human factors programs don't do a good job of training their students in design. So I, I'd like to kind of bring some of the things that I've learned from working within a, with industrial designers and, and uh, UX designers into a human factors curriculum. So go, going in the other direction, you've already mentioned a couple of uh, influences, Gibson and Klein and others. I wonder if there's any other folks outside those communities that have also been an influence on you? Yeah, what, the biggest for me is, is Rich Jagosinski, who was my advisor at, at Ohio State. And again, uh, I think that's a great this idea. was kind of an accident, but um, when I... Uh, I got a, a research position with Rich when I started Ohio State, and Rich was trained as an engineer, and the project we were working on was modeling pilots uh, using uh, calculus differential equations with classical model, control theoretic models. 
And when I started with Rich, I had not even taken a college calculus course. And so uh, I got an opportunity to, to learn about control systems at a very deep level and, and learn all the analytic techniques. And, you know, I, I took engineering courses and controls and, and uh, I, that gave me a foundation that I, that has shaped everything else. And, you know, the reason I'm, I think attracted to Gary's work to, to, to Gibson's work and stuff is because I see uh, they align with intuitions that I developed uh, working uh, with control theory and rich, which is all about the, you know, how to couple perception action. And so he, he was important. Uh, the, another really important person for me was, was Jens Rasmussen. And, uh, I got introduced to Jens while I was on the faculty at Illinois and, and yeah, it's one of those things where we just clicked and he sort of adopted me and invited me to go to, to Denmark and, and visit his labs and spend some time in his labs and stuff. And then uh, he just seemed to go out of his way to invite me to uh, conferences and workshops and things and, and, and help promote, promote some of our work. And, and again, one of the common con connections with Jens was he was also trained as a controls engineer. So, so he, he was certainly a big influence. And, you know, I, the other thing, the other person at Ohio state was, uh, Dean Owen's lab. And in particular, Rick Warren came to work with Dean Owen, uh, as a visiting researcher and, and Dean introduced me to Gibson from a philosophical level, but, uh, Rick really, uh, taught me about how to model optic flow fields and how to do the analysis of optical flow fields that then allowed me to to build optical flow into control models. So so you know those those things those guys really shaped early my early vision of of the world and 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 in a way that colored almost everything else that I've done. Nice. So what's next for you? What what's kind of the next research challenge you're thinking about? Yeah, so as I say, you know, in you know, I think it's the organization dynamics. So, you know, again, I'm focusing on now I, I see, you know, almost everything we do, it's either teaming with automation or teaming with other people. And so looking at the dynamics of, of team cognition, I think is, is the right now is the thing that I'm most interested in. Was some of you were with Delft, was that with robots, robots that played sports or something? Uh, well, that was one of the design challenges that that uh, I learned about through Delft. And so in Europe, they they they've run a number of competitions with to get uh, sort of soccer robots. And the other thing, you know, again, the other connection at Delft. So uh, many of the students whose dissertation committees I was on was Hank Stassen's and Hank was i i think the premier teacher of of control theory in in, in all the world and and he did, he did his he was known for his work on ships and slow control systems and, and kind of introduced a lot of the ideas that underlie process control but but even in the 70s i mean hank stassen taught in a mechanical engineering department um his students were all you know really skilled in the mathematics and the technical aspects of controls. But students got dissertations and master's thesis with him in the early, in the 70s, going out and watching kids on playgrounds and modeling their behavior for, for the design of prostheses. And so, you know, he was actually sending engineers on the playground who were building uh, prosthesis to actually go out and look at how kids interacted on the playgrounds and one of the things they discovered is really simple light solutions work much better than high computational solutions. And yeah, yeah, there's just something elegant about the the uh, nature of the engineering that the Delft does, and 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 the way they the control theory is used in very very elegant ways to and and that's you know currently the group there is Max Mulder and. Rene von Passen, who are you know carrying on, I think, in in the aero 
space domain carrying on Stassen's tradition. Very cool. Yeah. So I guess I'm just my, the way I was thinking um, that those robots that play soccer, that, that there, there's a team element to that. You started out saying everything is about teaming, whether it's humans and automation or humans and humans and automation or, or what. And I, I was just thinking that's in some ways a, a constrained but still complex example of how a team, how, how a machine tries to do teamwork. Yeah, and you know, I mean, one of the things that I, that uh, you know, when I look at control system, I think one of the reasons that I glammed on to control system was you know experiences as an athlete, and again, it, it's all about you know perception, action, coupling, and and uh, but yeah, a couple of years ago. Uh, almost 10 years ago now, uh, Tom Hughes and I spent a whole uh, football season with the uh, high school coaching staff. And we, we went to all their planning meetings. And, and then during the games, we listened to them. Uh, we monitored the headsets and listened to the coaches and decision-making. We actually sat, one of us sat in the press box with the coaches up there and, and another was on the field with the other coach. And yeah, I learned a lot about organizations and teamwork and and planning uh, from those observations. Nice. Okay, so I have one last sort of fun question for you. I wanted to ask if you could instantly become expert in something, anything you want, what would you choose? Music. Music. Yeah, so that's, so I've been struggling to learn how to play the guitar, but I I would love, you know, what the people I admire is somebody who can just walk in and pick up you know, multiple instruments, sit down at the piano, pick up a guitar. Yeah. I would love to be able to do that. And I, again, it's, it's something that's really hard for me. So whenever I sing, I think I'm sounding good. And my wife will tell you, she just shakes her head. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> my, my wife and kids laugh at me when I try to play guitar or sing. Is there a certain kind of music, a certain genre? Uh, no, yeah, yeah, I just, so my focus, because of my abilities, is just kind of songs they can sing around the campfire kind of thing. Oh. So kind of pop, that kind of thing. Yeah. But, and the, the other skill I really envy, and that, that also goes back to Delft, is, is skill with languages. Mm. And I am so envious of the, the skill that many of my Dutch colleagues have who can speak like three or four different languages fluently. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an ability I envy too. Well, gosh, John, this has been really fun. Thanks for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. It's it's my pleasure. So on that note, thank you for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.